Hello and welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers. On today's episode, we sit down with James Tidswell, guitarist for Vaughan Soho and music label owner at Domestic Lala. James unpacks his thoughts on band dynamics, impresses us with the story on how he was mentored by Lee Matthews on teamwork and explains what the dad's principle is and how he lives his life by it. This is a sick episode. Enjoy. You formed the band in 2004, Violent Soho. Can you explain the origins of that and how that all started? I left school uh, in, I graduated in the year 2000 and me and my mate, we uh, uh, skateboarded a lot and we wanted to work out a life around skateboarding or I guess a, uh, a way to get income around skateboarding. So when we left school, we, um, we actually had a little t-shirt company for a second. It was called Six Bucks Max. It was pretty funny. Um, and I was like a cowboy on a horse, like being bucked off. And then, um, and it, it went pretty well. Like, um, and he was working at Billabong uh, down at Burley. And uh, so he left and um, we, 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 we started a car cleaning company called Amigos Car Detailing. And the Amigos was written in cactus and then it had like a sombrero on it. And we wore um, sombreros and had like these uh, cards, like you got the El Guapo special. And, and then we stapled like Doritos to them and we went around door knocking. Um, this is 2001, door knocking like uh, real estate uh, companies because like they always had to have clean cars. And um, we, we figured uh, doing that, you know, we could, you know, set our hours so we could finish in time to go skating or, or, or whatever. And um, man, it actually like took off like instantly. I think we were making about 1200 bucks a week, which was, you know, it's huge. Yeah. Anyone else at 19. And we were in control of our own like hours. We had full uniforms. That's um, and yeah, we got into car detailing, really knew nothing about it, but we just took our mom's vacuum, a bucket and just went door knocking. And then, from there, we started getting quite creative, but like from the get-go, it like had quite a, a heavy marketing, you know, sort of thing behind it that made us sort of a bit different than Sparkles or whatever else there was around. And then, um, you know, at the time, we, we actually didn't realize that it was, it's pretty politically incorrect, I guess, but we, we called it that because our favorite movie uh, is The Three Amigos um, and, you know, uh, uh, that's why it was the El Guapo special. And uh, so that's where it's coming from. We're just fans of the movie. And then um, we, uh, he went on a skating trip. Uh, my mate, uh, his name was Luke, Luke Newman. So uh, I seem to go into business only with people called Luke, um, <laughs> including my record label. Uh, the, uh, uh, so he went on a skating trip to America for six weeks or something like that. But then he came back and was like, Luke, I don't want to clean cars. I want to uh, cut hair. And I was like, this is 2001. And I was like, dude, what do you know about cutting hair? He's like, nothing. He was just a mad Elvis fan. He used to, he used to wear Brill Cream. I don't know if you know what that is. Oh, respect, mate. Old school. Yeah. So this is, and this is, this is a, actually quite a cool part of the story. So he left uh, Amigos and I decided, well, I don't want to do it anymore. And he became a barber. And I was like, so what do I want to do? And this is pretty like any barber shop. And he opened up a barbershop called Barebones uh, Barber, which in Brisbane was like sort of the first, you know, new school barber, had lineups up the, up the street um, right from the get-go. And I was like, well, he, you know, he knew nothing about hair, cutting hair. And when I asked him that, he's like, well, what do we know about washing cars? So that, that's when I was like, 
I want to start a band, you know. Um, I had no musical ability, but I was like, what do I actually want to do with my life? He, he loves like, you know, real cream and, and cutting hair. Uh, what do I love? Well, I love music. And um, my sister's boyfriend, um, by the way, Luke then goes on to, uh, instead of Brill Cream, he invents and starts up a Uppercut Deluxe, which is a, yeah. a hair gel. Yeah, yeah. I yeah man. That's so, his company. Yeah. And so we left. Uh, we broke up uh, from Amigos and he started Uppercut Deluxe and I started Violent Soho. So it was, a, it, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting that we still went on to do things. Um, yeah, and at the time, we would have had no idea. And then, um, and I mean, I still remember when he told me he was going to do hair gel. And I was just like, oh. Imagine how many cars you could have cleaned if you stayed together. <laughs> <laughs> you would have cleaned yeah. every car in Australia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that was the idea. You know, we were pretty gung-ho about it from the start. We were trying to build franchises. Um, like that was the, the end goal. And then we, um, yeah, so we split up. And then my sister's boyfriend, uh, Luke Boredom, had a, uh, I was telling my sister and she's like, oh, you should hear Luke. He's just demoed some songs, but I'm not allowed to play them to you. Now, Luke at the time, he's still in school. And I mean, he never spoke a word and he was around my house all the time for like five years, they were together. And I never even really heard him talk. We talked a little bit about Limp Biscuit or Silverchair. So when my sister Amelia told me he had a, a band or, or some demos and he sung on them, I, I, I could not wrap my head around how this was possible. A dude that was like lived silently like a monk had a uh, voice. And then she played me the songs and she's like, you cannot tell him that I'm going to show you. And uh, a couple of those songs are actually on our first EP. They're not those versions, but it's a song called Hollywood and another song called uh, Revolutionary. So really old, old stuff uh, yeah. um, of an EP called Pigs and TV. But when she showed me them, I was... Uh, I mean, instantly I knew that we would, in that moment, without even talking to him, listening to that CD, I knew what we were going to do. And so I was like to my sister, well, I've got to tell Luke I've heard the songs because I'm going to call him up and ask to join his band. <laughs> and uh, she's like, all right. And um, uh, so I, I called him up and I was just like, dude, Amelia played me the CD. It's unreal. Um, what, what can I do? And I was going to play bass and Henry our bass player was going to play keyboards. It was actually quite different. It, it was quite a different style. And then um, Henry wanted to play bass. And then um, so I played guitar and we knew Mikey from school as well. And I um, mean, yeah, we started the band and I mean, it was, and off we went, you know. So that, that was when, 2004? That was, it was, yeah, I mean, we, we actually started jamming in 2002 um, under sort of a, a different name. Um, I think well, 2002, they were in school, so they made maybe 2003, but we jammed once, and I didn't know how to play guitar, so I was quite embarrassed, because everyone else was like pretty good. Well, not, not good at all, but they could play. And so like, as someone that was generally quite good at things, I was, I was embarrassed, and so I smashed my guitar at the first practice, and like, they loved that. Like, I'm in the jam room, just smashed it to bits. And then, um, so we, we actually took a year off from then, and I know that because that's how long it took me uh, to get a new guitar. Did you sell your car to, to fund the first EP? Am I reading that correctly? Yep. And it was the car that we started Amigos Car Detailing in. It was a white Nissan Micra, like tiniest little car. And it was great for fuel for driving around, cleaning cars. But um, yeah, I sold it for five grand. And we made our EP in total for six and a half. 
And on the back, it, it's on, it actually put out on Victim Records, which was my first record label. And when I started talking to, to Luke, I thought that I was going to manage the band because I didn't play an instrument. Um, so, yeah, I, was, I, was, I, was, I came from a, approaching it in quite a business type of a way, you know what I mean? How did you learn to play guitar? In front of people on the spot. <laughs> Just on the, the job. On yeah, the job. Learn on the job. Yeah, to the point where even to this day, I actually started during this Corona thing, um, I got my first two guitar lessons. So Fuck I can, off. Nah, no check. I can pretty much only play Violent Soho Sons. So I wouldn't know really how to play. Um, oh, I love that. Uh, Sweet Home Alabama or anything. <laughs> that, that's, that's is there any other people like that? Are there any other musicians that you know that are like that? Or is it? Not that I've ever met. Like, it's, um, that's how much I approached it with like the, the trade came well after the, the idea and the, the, the marketing and the, the, the business approach to it, if, if you will. It was kind of like I had to do, I had to learn guitar to keep it going, you know. That's unreal. So the train's rolling, you're building the momentum and then you get picked up um, Thurston Moore's label over there. What was that, Ecstatic Peace, I think it was? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, and you, and you released um, an album over there and, and you relocated there. Did you moved over, over there as well to the States? Yep, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened in between if you want the actual... Like, oh, mate, give us, give us a rundown, yeah. Of the band. All right, well, what happened from there is we recorded that first EP. Um, we had no idea about basic things like, um, you know, how to uh, book shows. Um, we couldn't get on lineups because we weren't sort of cool or in the scene. So what we decided to do is just go around and ask venues to let us play. You know, some of these would be like pool halls or Fat Louis in Brisbane. It didn't even have shows. It was a, a pool hall. And so, you know, we struck a deal with them that they'd give us some money and we'd play. And it was like free entry. And we played there week in, week out. Um, we actually launched our first EP there. And from there, we sort of get, got a little bit of uh, attention because uh, there was a band called The Greats in Brisbane at the time. They're still around. And um, they were like blowing up. This is around 2006, I guess. They were on like a Just Jeans commercial. They're from Kapalaba in Brisbane. Um, or Jeans West, I don't know. Huge, yeah, that was massive. Yeah, they were popping off with a song called Trampoline at this time. And anyway, they put out their debut uh, record called Gravity Won't Get You High, which is still such a good... Uh, Love that, yeah. Um, had a 19-20-20, uh, I think, was the, the big hit on it. And then... Um, we became, they, they took us out on tour. So our first ever time uh, playing in Sydney and uh, in Sydney was at the Enmore in, um, in Sydney, which is two and a half thousand seater venue. I mean, it's unbelievable. And at this time, we're not even played on, on Triple J. We send it to them, obviously. We send it to community radio. I think four Triple Z played it a little bit, but that, I mean, the first EP had songs on it that ended up, you know, going through on a few records, but the greats got to host uh, Triple J and they were the first people to play us on, uh, on a show. Like I think they played Bombs Over Broadway or something like that on their show. And then after that, we then like got like pretty, uh, we got a little bit of attention and I won't say the record labels, but the first record label to give us a deal, and this is still quite early on. I mean, I definitely don't know how to play guitar at this point. <laughs> is, um, is, uh, they, they gave us a record deal, right? And I knew that we had so much more in us that I took the first record deal I ever got and framed it and put it up on my wall as the first deal I ever said no to and went and told the record label, I, um, yeah, you know, uh, 
Well, Shut I didn't it. tell them we're not going to sign. What, what we did was, is we said, we'll demo some songs for you. So we took the money from them to demo some songs. And they said, give us four songs. Being a typical band, we went and recorded 10. And, you know, they were like, oh, well, you know, there's only four usable, which got my nose out of joint, of course, like any band. I'm like, no, 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 like they're all hits. So I put, I said, we said, we're not going to sign the deal. We, and I put it up on my, on my wall every day to look at that. I've already said no to one deal. And, you know, it was pretty weird at the time because a record deal was unheard of for us, you know, growing up or anyone around us. In, in Brisbane, we really only had, you know, Powderfinger and Regurgitator. So it's not even like we're from a town where there's an industry for this thing or labels getting around. So it was, a, it was, it was quite a, a bold move to, to be like, that's what we said no to. And we looked at it, you know, you had to look at it every day that I've already said no to one. So we've got to go do better. And then from there, uh, 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 one of our heroes, we love this band called Magic Dirt and um, Dean Turner, who's a bass player, actually from down, down your way there, or from Geelong. I know that Dean surfed uh, Torquay uh, a lot. See? Yeah. And, um, well, he was, uh, and, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a skateboarder as well, really good skateboarder. And um, he, um, he wanted to manage us. So, like, that was pretty out of the blue. And this sort of, we had just taped, uh, sort of lost a bit of momentum by not signing a deal, by not having management, by not really knowing where to go. We, we signed a deal. Well, we didn't sign, but we started working with a booking agent who's still the same booking agent uh, that we work with till this day. So since 2006, we have no contract with him, um, just a handshake, and he's still been our booking agent. And he now books, I mean, like, you know, he owns Village Sounds, which is probably the biggest booking agency in the, in the country, part owner Splendor, you know, part owner Fortitude Valley Musical. And he's one year younger than me. So we did this, you know, agreement back then. We're the only original band from his roster back then that he still looks after, obviously. And now it's like unbelievable. It's like, you know, Missy Higgins and, you know, all the, all the big stuff. So he stays with us. Dean's managing us. And then out of nowhere, I'm working at City Beach uh, in Brisbane in the warehouse, folding T-shirts. And um, we get a call from Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth. In, in Australia, mind you, I've got to say, I've skipped so much. I just skipped so no, much. I keep going. I'll cool. go back. I'll go back. So we, I then get a job at ADT that comes with a company car. And we did our first tour in that company car using their fuel card for fuel and everything to get around. And then um, I come back. I, 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 I don't know how I, I, I got it, but we got like a, I got like a payout or something from them. And I used that to record We Don't Belong Here. And Dean, our manager from Magic Dirt now at this time, this is around 2007, he records it with us at a place called Head Gap in Melbourne. It's a studio in Melbourne. We, it's around 2007. And we, we recorded an album which we called We Don't Belong Here, which was kind of like poking fun at the Australian music industry that certainly, you know, when bands like at the time, it was like muscles and like art versus science. And I mean, nothing against that. It's just a band like us didn't really fit what was happening. And then, um, so that's why we called it We Don't Belong Here. And that's when the whole Mansfield or taking pride in where we're from sort of stemmed from. I mean, it was taking the, the, the piss. We grew up big fans of hip hop, obviously. And then, um, so the whole postcode thing, but it was like, we weren't accepted anywhere. So we were like, well, this is where we're from, you know? And we sort of pressed into more of who we were. And as, as a joke, but at the same time as in like, it was a lot easier for our thing to be more us 
if that makes sense. Like, 100%. yeah, it feels like, and at the time it really felt like the entire music industry was trying to be bigger than themselves. And, you know, we went from Sleepy Jackson to Empire of the Sun, for an example. Now, Empire of the Sun, amazing. There's, I'm not, not saying that, but like, we were never going to dress up in like kimonos with makeup on, you know, it's just so far from our, our, our you know, approach to music. Where were we? We don't belong here. We're recording that. Dean's our manager, get a call from Thurston Moore out of nowhere. And he's like, come to New York, you know. Um, I heard you played in a bar. This is how the story goes. Um, in New York, I asked the bar who it was, told her uh, it was you guys. And so here I am making contact. Now in Australia, we're getting ripped on like for being like grunge, for being uh, try hard, I guess, or not authentic or I don't know, just boring and, 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 you know, out of date, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you know, here we got the, the call from like people calling us grunge revivalists. Now I, I gotta be honest. We didn't think of ourselves as grunge. We still don't. I understand you know how other people view it and that's totally fine but we just don't view it like that we've you know we're as big a fans as blink 182 if not more than we are of nirvana just being that our age you know um so yeah first and more causes so we're getting these calls from like the godfather like the dude that found nirvana signed you know nirvana to geffen and let me tell you it was one of the most vindicating moments of my life um <laughs> and the phone call go so you get a call he called you yep yep Oh, well, called us. Uh, yeah, called me. Um, I spoke to him. Then we did a conference call. He said, fly over. So we fly over to America to play for him, uh, like a private, sh not a private show, like it's a cake shop in uh, Manhattan. And we, we do a few, a few shows. Um, he stands at the front and we do a cover of a Melbourne band actually called God. Uh, we do a song called My Pal by them. And uh, this is in, yeah, it's still 2008. We've released We Don't Belong Here. Now, we only pressed a thousand copies of We Don't Belong Here. And that sold out in 55 days without really much, you know, radio support or anything. I think Love is a Heavy Word got a little bit of play on Triple J. But, I mean, we're not talking added to rotation or anything like that. It's like on home and home. So it's still very grateful for all the support. So we're over there. We do these shows. And we've got show in LA. And momentum builds. Like somehow word gets out around America. And we end up in Malibu doing a private show for Rick Rubin. I still can't play guitar, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is uh, real. You were freaking out, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. this is like absolutely out of control at this point. Like, uh, and we, we have no idea, obviously, what's about to you know, happen to us years later. So, yeah, we got Rick Rubin, private show for him. He wants to see it. Um, hires us like any spec backline we want. Like, I ordered this guitar. It's worth like, 15,000 bucks, I can't even play the thing. And I was like, why not? Like, I'm never gonna get to play one again. I now obviously own a few. But then the, um, uh, the, 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 the writer is still probably one of the biggest writers we've ever got. And it's where Weezer actually recorded the Red album with Rick Rubin. And where I think Pink recorded an album there as well. But anyway, so we do this show. And then it turns out this other guy in um, Hollywood who had signed Bands like The Used, I think he actually signed The Veronicas uh, by memory. Anyway, uh, Taking Back Sunday, more sort of that sort of stuff. He wanted to see us, but we're on our way to the airport because we're actually playing Home Bake in Sydney the next day. So we do the show for him, then fly straight out to Sydney and play uh, Home Bake 
So we actually played Malibu, Hollywood and Sydney in 30 hours, three shows in 30 hours. And then um, that set finished in uh, Homebank, by the way, like trashing the, the, the set, like the, Luke didn't even have a guitar. He's just screaming into the mic. We closed, I still remember it, with a song called Scrape It from We Don't Belong Here. And then um, that's sort of it, right? It sort of stops and then, yeah, Thurston follows us up with wanting to do a record deal and, and then so we're like, well, I mean, obviously we're signing with Thurston Moore, um, you know. Um, there was obviously a whole bunch of other labels, which is just insane. And then when he signs us, so he signs us to just like a little deal because he only looks after more sort of avant-garde type stuff. We would have been the first sort of more um, traditionally structured, you know, rock music that he would have worked with in, in years. And um, he plays it to his boss. So he just signs us to like a little deal kind of thing. We're still stoked. He signs it to his boss, who is like Andrew Cromfield. Uh, he was the president of, he's now the president of Universal. And he loves it, right? So he gets into us. Our budget gets blown out like you wouldn't believe. To the point where he, um, he actually like A&R'd or, or he signed Little Wayne for the Carter Three, this Andrew Cromfield guy. So uh, Thurston's exact words were to me, um, this is Little Wayne shit when we were talking about budget because it went from like, you know, a 20 grand record to we can choose any producer we want. And I'll never forget going, well, we can't choose Butch Vig because everyone already thinks that we sound like Nirvana. You know, it was, um, you yeah, controversy. Yeah. What you do, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. And I mean, imagine saying no to having your record produced by Butch Vig. So we end up with going with uh, Gil Norton, who's done like Pixies, won Grammys with the Foo Fighters, yeah. Jimmy Eat World, the Distillers. It was just like the perfect fit, you know, for us. And we go and make this record and in total, including like video, and I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff. The budget will end up being like 300 grand, right? That's what we ended up spending on this thing, right? And in Australia, oh, here's the best bit. Universal owned the label in Australia that was offered us our first deal that we said no to. So we said no to them and then signed direct to their big parent company in America, which at the time, this is unheard of. Bands <laughs> in Australia are not independently signing direct to American majors, you know, through first and more. So we are just thinking, holy hell, like we are killing it. Um, we know what we're doing. We always knew what we're doing and good on us sort of thing. This is what we're thinking. We've made this record with our hero. It's all amazing. The record sounds incredible. To mix the record, it was 70 grand. And we got Rich Costi, who also worked with Gil Norton on um, Color and Shape. So they won a Grammy on the Color and Shape together. And we've got this combo back together. Um, he's also well known for working with Rage Against Machine, Mars Volta. Like the list is insane. We've never since worked with that sort of caliber. I mean, it, it's that unreal. Um, Muse, he did Muse. So we're talking like this level of, you know, Just a few small bands. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then us, right? Doing this, me not even being able to play guitar, like doing this like very simple grunge rock. And um, we didn't have enough songs at the time because we were, this all happened within six months. So what we did was, is we put half the songs or seven songs from We Don't Belong Here onto what was now called self-titled with a reworked version of that same front cover because we didn't seem to get that message out loud enough, which was the kid wearing the crown of thorns. 
which is about growing up in obviously Pentecostal uh, environment, which we did. And then um, we get six new songs, add them on. And we think no one's going to care because we only pressed a thousand copies of We Don't Belong Here, right? And it's got seven new songs on it. Anyway, it's released here in Australia. As far as I know, no one in the music industry heard it, although they all claim to. And then it didn't really get picked up or played. Uh, so this 300 grand record, there was not a single song. Jesus Stole My Girlfriend did certainly not go over spot rotation, um, if at all. And I'm not complaining. I'm just more saying how weird it is that like, and everyone said, oh, well, they re-released the same album. They re-recorded the same album. But to us, it just wasn't the case. And there was only a thousand of them. So it's like, who has it? You know, show me, show me. You, you don't have it. You didn't play it. You don't, it's not a reworking of the album. But anyway, so that album goes on to sell like three and a half thousand copies here in Australia. And long story short, we do 210 shows that year in America. Super mainstream shows, including like Lollapalooza. We're on commercial radio. We're the sixth most played track on K-Rock. 21 in the Billboard charts, Jesus Stole My Girlfriend. But back home, nothing. And growing up, loving Australian music, Friends of Rome, Grinspoon, Silverchair, Powderfinger, Regurgitators, the list goes on. It didn't even seem right to continue in America trying to, you know, push this big machine whilst leaving our, uh, you know, the motherland, if you will, mm-hmm. behind because it meant more to us to, to be a band here. So long story short, we're on tour with 30 Seconds to Mars. And you can look up uh, some footage on YouTube of like Jared Leto, like trashing the set and grabbing the microphone. This is how far we're out of our element. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and, and 30 Seconds to Mars, right? We're, we're playing all of our own instruments. Not saying that they weren't, but you know, they have like even things where like they have built in call and response. So like into the thing and you know, we'd be at soundcheck and you can hear the whole stadium chanting the words, but there's no one in the, in the stadium. So, and I don't say that to rag them. I say that like, as in, we are so far away from this. You know, we got two guitars, a bass and a drums and they're plugged in, you know, a tuner between us, you know. Are we, are we on? Are we working? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we decide basically like, let's just go home. Like it wasn't a breakup, but it was definitely like, this is not what we thought we we're doing. We are so part of the machine. I often hear artists or people, and again, I don't mean to put them down, but when they say the machine, there is no music, there is no machine in Australia. Like as far as I'm concerned, with what I've experienced in America, this is the wild west. And um, you know, you can do what you want here and get played alongside like Kanye West, you know? Now you've got your own label. I know you've had previous labels before, but Domestic La La, you've signed some some really cool bands there. How, how are you finding the music, um, the music scene at the moment with everything that's going on? And how did it all start with Domestic La La for you? Domestic La La started, it's actually a Violent Soho song. And I really wanted to do a band label, but it's just very difficult having the four of us, like there's so many decisions with a label. Um, there's already four people in a band plus their management, you know, it's just a nightmare. So I ended up, um, you know, just, just doing it on my own and, and, and taking that name from one of our songs. And um, the reason why I wanted to do a label was because being brought up under Dean Turner uh, from Magic Dirt, I skipped a major part there as well. When we signed to Thurston Moore, he actually passed away. So oh. we were on tour in like Newcastle and we had to fly down to go to his 
funeral, then fly back that same day and, and play uh, a show. Yeah, I'm never That's brutal. It. Yeah, it was brutal. And so, yeah, it's playing ups and downs during this period, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then, um, but what I was really compelled to do was because of that upbringing by Dean Turner from, you know, the real era of Australian underground music, I found it really important to be, if we're the last band that was brought up with a little bit of that, that somehow we have to pass it on. That, that's what was the driving force behind it. And I'm really like proud of the bands that I'm working with that they have a very similar mentality, um, you know, very much head down, bum up and, um, you know, get, get the job done sort of thing, which is a, a, quite an Australian uh, approach to making music. Is it different being, like, was it a natural thing going from being, like, obviously you took, took up guitar late, you made it happen, but moving from that, then transitioning into having your own label, was that just a natural progression of where you thought it would go? Or did you know that was something you wanted to do for a while? I knew I wanted to, to do a label for sure. I sort of have always known that I was going to sort of do this sort of stuff, I guess. Even when I didn't play guitar, I knew I was going to be in a band. Um, I didn't know where the band was coming from, but I knew in my head, I invented the whole thing in my head. I often joke, like I accepted like a thousand arias mentally before I actually got up on the stage and accepted one. You know, so yeah, I wasn't as nervous because in my head I'd won it a thousand times. So no, it was, it was all, everything that I've done is natural in the way that I've never had the ability um, there first. But I've also never let that stop me from, you know, dreaming um, and then working with um, passionate, uh, driven people that also want to make it happen. I, I often find sometimes ability can get in the way of getting the job done. And I know that sounds crazy, but. It's actually like, we've had a few people talk about, we've talked about teamwork, a lot of, um, had some people from like so the tech aspect and they were talking about uh, simple questions. What makes a good team? And it's amazing how much of people just say, connecting common purpose, understanding each other. And you don't have to be the most skill, skillful person or the most talented person, but if you all work together and you've got a common understanding where you're going, you're more likely to have success. You know what's crazy? I, um, I skipped a bit, but I, was, I became a, a did, did an electrical apprenticeship for a little bit. And um, it was because the guy allowed me to just tour and do what, whatever I wanted. So that, that was when I actually came back from our first trip to America in between signing and then moving over there. And we had breakfast every day at this cafe called Roman Empire. But there was this dude that sat there and I became friends with him. And it was just because we had breakfast every day. And um, one day this dude came over and asked for an autograph from him. And um, we, I sort of knew, someone mentioned to me who he was, but it meant nothing to me. But, um, and he was like, fuck off or something. I was like, whoa, this is badass. Anyway, um, I, he asked me to do some electrical work at his home. So I went to his home and did, did it for him. And um, uh, he had a, a big photo of himself in there and him in his football jersey. And uh, he then spent every day with me talking about my band like it was a team. And his name uh, is Lee Matthews. He was actually the coach of um, the Brisbane Bears or whatever. <laughs> Brisbane, Brisbane Lions. Fuck mate. off. I'll say fuck. Yeah, hang out with Lee Matthews. I, I had breakfast with Lee uh, Matthews every day for or every weekday. Him and, and his wife sometimes would join for like a year, just me and my um, mate. And he loved it because I knew nothing about AFL. Never asked him a single thing about it. Yeah. I can't believe that. Um, that's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, so this is in between that. And like, he's telling me about bands. Um, like he's like, they're exactly the same as, as a team, exactly the same as a football team. And he gave me a piece of advice that changed 
every way that I looked at everything. And, I, and when you said, what makes a good team? My conversations with Lee, and he didn't say this, although I'm sure he thinks it, it's a, it's a, it's a good leader. And that's a very simple way of, of looking at it, but it's keeping the team as that are individuals. Um, so when we're individuals, right, we all have uh, different rewards uh, and ways to reward ourselves and different goals. So to, to set all that aside, to get us all on a common you know, practice to go and do that is next to impossible um, because we're all individuals, especially with a big team. But the hardest thing ever is to do it with a team that's already won the championship because as individuals, everyone's now going and, and, and withdrawing from the bank account. They're all paying their egos. They've all hit their goal. So to not only do that twice, but do that three times, which I, I think he did. Um, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, with the Brisbane Bear Alliance as well. Like not even like a, probably a very hard team to work with. I'd imagine not being good. I always thought about that because I guess like, he, he, he's, he, his, his message was that when you win the championship, you've got to make sure that no one starts withdrawing their, their reward yet. You've got to keep them focused. And that is when it becomes really, really hard. So I took that on as a huge challenge for my band because we were already, as far as I was concerned, way, I mean, we had won the championship because the rest wasn't even possible. And uh, I mean, that wasn't even possible. So, I mean, um, so yeah, that, that's, that's probably my, uh, like, you know, a little bit on, on, on teamwork. Um, I, 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 can't believe, by Lee. I can't believe that you got mentored by Lee Matthews. Like how, how sick is that? Like I, I'm a locks of full footy nuffy and I grew up knowing who Lee Matthews and all the rest of it is, but the aspect of having like passing on that knowledge around teamwork and obviously a band dynamic, you must have had some blues over the time, you know? How do you hold that all together? Because the, the, the common goal is bigger than all of us, you know? I think um, when we're together, we're not individuals. As in like, let's say, you know, Henry's got a photo shoot on tomorrow and, you know, I've got a meeting with a band, you know, whatever. Um, we've all got other things on, let's just say that. And um, something for Soho comes up and it's, it's a we're so understanding of each other that we're like, don't drop what you're doing for Soho. Let's just make sure that when Soho is on, you're not trying to fit in all that other stuff. So um, it's, it's really just being very respectful of each other, um, respectful and understanding of what, what it goes into um, to making a, a band, you know, behind the team, behind the band, there's also all of the families of every individual. And I mean, um, you know, we're the first to, to thank our families, you know, uh, so much because without them, this just wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. And, you know, kids would be like, oh, well, of course they would be because you get money. It's, it's not about money. It's about being around and, you know, available. And, you know, we don't live exactly the normal nine to five life, you know, sort of thing. So, yeah. So, yeah, we, we just put each other first and we're very respectful and we're very understanding of, how hard life is and we certainly don't um have a band to make anyone's life harder i it's love fun. the process yeah it's fun yeah and you know what when it is real and that's something that like our band strives for and whatever people's perception of what's real that's, that's not up to me what's real to us is that we are enjoying it that we're compelled to do it that the reason for us needing to release another record 
is beyond us wanting to be on stage in and you know basking in in our own egos you know what i mean it's um it's it's just way beyond that and that's why like you know we'll take four years to to do an, another album because it, we're, we're not going to be disingenuous you know and we're not going to force each other to do something that you know is going to put strain or pressure on your relationship or your family or you know other uh interests you have what i wanted to touch on i suppose performance so when you're gearing yourself up for a big gig or a big tour um do you still get nervous before shows is there anything that you do before shows routines that you've made have developed over time and yeah do you still get nervous when you play them big shows and big festivals yeah definitely nervous i mean you can only imagine what it's like uh walking out to twenty thousand people uh with a guitar on when you can't play it that's what i was thinking mate like far out i would be shaking in my shaking in my desert boots i reckon (laughs) it look it's it's a pretty out-of-body experience um the easiest way to explain um i think the best thing that's happened to us is failure and um we failed for so long that the success doesn't seem real so we're we're so blessed in the way that we're consistently grateful for everything that we have because we had nothing for so long. And that, that's what makes it easy. Gratefulness makes everything easy. That's unreal, man. Cause I, it's funny. You're talking about going out into the stage. Like, do you get nervous? Lock just before you jumped on lock sends me a photo and it's, um, it's, it's an old one, but it's like you there hairs flowing in the lights are going on. You got sunnies on at night, like you got a basketball t-shirt on, like, is there's presence on the like on the stage like if for someone who's nervous like it's a big difference in the performance like you come on and give a shit experience but that's something that Locke wants to talk about is experiences but like how do you gear yourself up because it's like a st- it's a different mindset you go from us sitting here having a conversation like this and being a, like a genuine fucking rock star you know it's like, what's going on it's it's funny to hear that like i i laugh because it does not seem real that i could be the person that you're talking about you know um <laughs> It's just like any other job in the way of your nervous energy, if you can harness it, can quickly become excited energy. And it's, it's so similar, like they're, they're so close. And I know this because I've lived a life full of so many exciting things and also, you know, so many situations where I'm very nervous. Like if you can harness that nervous energy all the way up until before you're going on, your stay, on stage and then as a group, flip that into excitement it's on you know and you know instantly i mean i know when we're walking out that it's going we are nailing it to the back of the auditorium you know the the theater if you will or amphitheater in splendor for example the people up in the back gold vip bar is who you know we're performing at so the energy is obviously much different to if you're performing to who's directly in front of you and it's very similar to any other job in that you know for example if you guys have to get up at a board meeting or it's your turn to do the presentation the you're still you but you become uh you sort of on steroids kind of like you know there's there's this outer body you that's actually performing you know if if you're doing a good job (laughs) give him your thing lock go tell us what you normally say what about wrestlers Oh, wrestlers. Yeah, it was, it's, oh mate, I've watched this documentary and I've told it to every fucking guest we've had on, I reckon. And it's just about when wrestlers, uh, they reckon the most successful ones that just accentuate their personalities the most. The ones who can tap in, like you said, to that energy. 
um, and just not fake anything. It's being authentic, but just bringing that energy and enthusiasm because it's natural and people respond to authenticity. I couldn't agree more. And it's the number one thing I, I think they'll be most proud of, um, you know, at the end of the day about my band. I, I'm not here to say that we're authentic to anyone else's opinions or beliefs, but I know that um, that's the exact way we've, uh, we've approached it. We've stood, stepped back further into ourselves constantly, um, even to the point of our, our latest record. You know, it's a photo of a house around the corner from where we grew up. You know, it's, it's, it's almost mundane. Um, every, you know, we got the door knocking in there in, in a video clip from the thing from us door knocking back in the day, selling security alarms. You know, so everything that we ever rehash or you see as like marketing, it's actually just stuff we've actually already done. And it's like, well, you know, let's go and do that because there's a funny aspect to it or there's something that can be brought out of it. Like, and that's the example is door knocking in that, in that case. Do you review gigs? Like, do you guys that talk shop after gigs and go, this went well, this, this didn't, or is it just move on to the next one? No, we don't. We, we pretty much, uh, we may have used to, I can't remember, but no, nah, not really, because it's, it's kind of done, you know, as in like, we don't live in the past at all. And, and I think like in our industry, it serves us well, because um, we're never holding on to anything. And I think it, it can be quite dangerous to not just beat yourself up about a, a shit show. That's actually could be good because it'll propel you to be good. It's more pumping yourself up and feeling good about the good show. That's already over. It's been, it's in the past. Your next one's coming up. And if, um, if you're sitting there just, you know, stroking your own ego, it seems to go downhill pretty quick is from what I've seen in, in the music industry. In terms of a live show, what's more important in terms of priority? Is it the energy that you bring or the technicality or what comes first to, to nail a good show? Is it making sure you bring the energy first and then the technical stuff will happen or it doesn't matter about the technical stuff at all? We definitely don't worry about the technical stuff. We are 100% energy. <laughs> like that's this, there's lots of people doing um, online shows and stuff at the moment. We actually just did a couple of songs, but that was a different thing. But the reason why we don't do that is because we're so aware that our show is, we don't really have uh, confetti or fire or, you know, any of the trickery. We really get, get up there and just let the, the entire event happen. And um, the, uh, the crowd is, 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 is almost more important than us, I'd say. I'd say we're probably the only band you go and see live that you want to make sure that there's a good crowd there. There's no other band where I'd be like, gee, I hope it's a good turnout, you know, but yeah. um, we, we kind of have this footy team support, level of support. Like people that come to our shows wear our shirts, you know, um, it, where it's a common thing where you know not to wear the band's T-shirt to the show that you're going to. Well, not at our shows. I mean, people come out like they got their footy jerseys on and um, it's kind of like we're all cheering each other on and we're all celebrating what I kind of like to think is, is why it's so popular in Australia is because, you know, we are the, definitely the little band that could. And we never disrespected um, ourselves or our supporters by trying to be more than that. We just kept being grateful that we get put in this situation by the people that support us. In any business, the biggest downfall you're going to have is when you think that you're more important than your customer. And, and that's because they're the ones giving you the business. 
you know. Um, they're the ones saying that what you do matters, you know, not you. Like, so you got to, yeah, that's, that's, that's the best I can explain it, if that makes sense. I'm not, I'm not saying our, our people that come to our shows are customers either. I just mean like, I know that they're more 100%. important at the show than what we are kind of. We're with you 100%. No, 100%. I was going to mention a show that um, I think the first time I saw you guys play live, it would have been the Hungry Ghost preview show at the Liberty Social. I was waiting about an hour for you boys to come out. And all of a sudden, yeah, like you're saying, everyone in the violent ho-ho, Soho gear, and it's unusual, like you said, to a gig for, for people to wear the band shirts. And I remember after been waiting an hour like jesus christ these guys gonna come out they better rock like the fucking beatles and you just bought the heat after i think it was covered in chrome the chorus happened and everyone just started going bananas is that when you knew you were like jesus christ this is dude this it was is the, the big album dude it was the minute it was that that's the show yeah so as as a, i can't believe you were there because it was 300 pack cap and I mean, that place was packed. They, it burnt the place to the ground, smashed up. We, we had to, oh dude, that's the show. Um, that's the show, that's the show. That was the moment we knew that this is it. Holy crap, it's gonna take off. And we, what yeah, the energy. Like, I was there, man. I, I, we, me and Shane, my friend Shane McNeil, love that I mentioned his name. We've been massive fans. On your show, On your show, you know. Shana. <laughs> and, um, We've been a big fan of your self-titled and all that sort of stuff. And wow. we came to that show and we were like, holy fucking shit. Like you just, you just tore the roof off and I've never seen another band just bring the heat as much as you guys did that night. And it was all new songs that we've never heard. So I was like, it was. I can't wait till this shit comes out. And then me and Shane ducked off to the States about, oh, maybe a couple of weeks later. And we heard, we actually heard your album for the first time on through a Starbucks cup under a bridge in Anaheim. And we were like, holy fucking shit. No way. And we just well, knew it was going to be Dude, nice. we, we, yeah, well, we, we had no idea. So then we go from recording this $300,000 record that sells 3,000 copies and no one over here gives a shit to, I mean, you did, thank you. Um, <laughs> but mind you, when I say that, it's so interesting because, you know, we were still selling out two Northgate socials on the self-titled tour, which is still, that's big, you know, right? yeah, yeah. And, and that's without like, like a, a ton of radio support, let's say. So it's so funny that we were thinking that that was nothing. And then we're playing Liberty Social and that was something to the point where that show as well, we got the song called Dope Calypso. And at the end of that, that's the show. Like, so that's the backstage room that we're partying in. That's the end of that video is that show. And do people ripped out all like the, um, the whole ceiling was exposed. All yeah. People swinging from the thing. We had yeah. nowhere to stand on stage. It was, yeah, it's unbelievable. Still the most, um, yeah, I, can't, I, I love thinking about that show. But um, Hungry Ghost, the crazy thing was, is, and I skipped a lot, we signed to IAU and all that doesn't, uh, IAU and, um, you know, Johan, Johan's support really changed how we thought of our band as well, which was awesome um, to have him there. But Hungry Ghost, the crazy thing is, we recorded it in our mate's shed that he had a, built a studio from, like, gone and gotten stuff from Bunnings himself. Like, everything is from Brisbane. We get our mate to engineer it. He's on. He's he's a tree lopper by trade, so he has to take his holidays to make the record. He then, I don't know who mixed it. He might he mixed it. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, we made this record. We made Hungry Ghost for seventeen thousand dollars, substantially less. <laughs> and I, I think it's like it's just shy of seventy thousand platinum or something sales. Insane, insane. You know? I still listen to that album to this day. Flat stick, love it. It's cool to think that. 
you know, we have one of those, uh, those albums. But, um, and then again, you know, when Hungry Ghost comes out, it comes out like, it, it comes out at six in the, in the charts, which was unheard of again for a band like us. You gotta remember now it's like Chet Baker and Flume era of, of music. So again, not, not dogging them. They just, we were a very different style, especially at that time. And then um, Covered in Chrome was not only not, it was not on full high rotation on the radio. It was on spot rotation again. And then it came in at like, I don't actually know, but I think it was 14 in the hottest 100. And we even stopped listening to the hottest 100 because we were statistically like, oh, well, it's impossible to get in the 20. Right, because I mean, you've, we've never we're not played on Triple J. Oh, we're not we're not played as much as what you know, say Flumes yeah, at least. Yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah. So, and then we come in on that, and then it really changes. Ceremony said was our first proper full ad to radio, and it just you know went gangbusters from there. I mean, it literally went from like that Liberty Social show of like three hundred people to like you know, packed amphitheater at like Splendor in the Grass, 20,000 people or something, you know, singing the words too, not just, um, you know, standing there waiting for the next band kind of what thing. Is, what does that feel like when you got all these, these people just shouting the words back that you, you know, you've, you've mustered up as a group or whatever, that must be an unreal feeling. Splendor or Falls Festival are the two like just mind-blowing, um, mind-blowing uh, shows. It's the easiest way I can describe it is, you know, sometimes if you go see something like the Grand Canyon and it takes your breath away, you know, you walk out there and the crowd, it's like, you're so forced into that outer body experience because you can't be you to make it happen. I don't know about other performers, but you know, I'm not able to do that. It's something that comes from that where I can't explain, you know, you're out there and now it has to happen. It's, I kind of think it'd be, similar to playing state of origin you know i don't know what the equivalent is in afl but you know i think some of the 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 extra stuff that happens is like you know you go from playing junior afl i guess or whatever your q cup is we we have up here for footy but um you know you're, you're a really good player part of the jump is not just the ability really or the constant training it's also just the endorphins and the the environment of this many people cheering when you got the ball, it instantly becomes so much bigger than you personally. And I think a lot of people could uh, live a better life if they, you know, stop thinking it was them. <laughs> I'm going to do a bit of self-indulgent little talk here and talk about that. Like one little, one moment, because you talk about experiences and I was lucky enough to be one of those junior kids that went on to be on a list. And I was, I was at Richmond and I, my first game on the big time, like I, same thing, grew up in, in Essendon, family love footy did whatever but then all of a sudden I'm running out through the banner on the MCG there's people everywhere on the stands I'm going what the fuck's going on I'm 18 years old I'm like 65 kilo I'm lining up on these people just bumping I'm going my life's pretty weird and I our first game I kicked a goal and I kicked a goal Whoa. crowd went nuts I'm going I'm the man mum and dad are up in the crowd I'm jumping up doing whatever Short-lived, a couple of years later, I'm out the system. But that's all right, right? Because that experience I've had in front of that, that pressure that you're talking about, like the, it's a different world. There's, there's people yelling, they're screaming. It's just different. Yeah, I also think though as well, like you are clearly very, you know, 
balanced, I guess. I mean, from what I, if you can go through that and still be able to, you know, smile and, and, and take that as a, a positive experience. There's a lot of people out there that would be angry at the world and everything's everyone else's fault and that they were supposed to make it. And, you know, um, if you have that feeling that you were supposed to make it, you probably still are. It just may not be at that thing. I'm with you. That's probably hit the nail on the head for me. All right, in there. Hey, well, you're probably doing what it is that is making it. And this, what you're doing now, um, you know, going to be Joe Rogan for all we know, you know what I mean? Um, and that could be the thing. That feeling of that you are going to make it and something bigger than you is, is pulling you, not you pushing, but is pulling you. You just get, drop in and, you know, enjoy the ride. You're going there. It is nothing to do with you. Just be present and enjoy the ride. And if you are truly compelled that you are going to make it, you are. I don't know in which field. I don't know how, when. All the circumstances in the world can change. But you are going to. You just got to drop in and tune out. That's right the wave. That's sick advice. How important is confidence? That's it's such an interesting question because it depends on what people think is as confidence. You know, I think a lot of people are confused what confidence is. Um, and sometimes it can be uh, a hollow confidence or a, more so someone acting in a way of which they think is being confident. I think you've got to be confident that you know your true north as a person and your integrity. And you've got to be confident that you are going to do what it is that you know you are going to do. Everything else, is, it doesn't matter. That's the confidence you've got to have. So you, I, don't, I don't have to have confidence that I'm going to be an awesome performer. I've got to have confidence that I'm going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, getcha. And you know what? The performance is obviously going to come. I mean, it has to. It's 100%. A given. But rather than focusing on something like that, which can suck me out in the moment, well, I mean, the goal is way beyond being a good performer. That's just part and parcel of what I have to do. You said you're a bit of a dreamer earlier. You said you've, you've thought big about all these different things. Obviously, you've become a rock star and you didn't know how to play guitar. Is creativity big for you? Do you can you turn the switch on and off? Do you have to have like, like how do you get into your zones and start thinking and dreaming big? Do you set yourself a time aside? Do you have a process or you just comes to yep. you whatever? Yeah, I wake up uh, 4.30 every morning. I uh, walk straight outside and I do like some breathing exercises, super mellow. I drink like a liter of water. And then um, I'll come indoors, uh, normally make my wife a coffee because uh, she goes to work. Then I'll, I'll meditate for uh, 30 minutes, guided meditation. I think I'm up to like 52 hours or something for the year. So um, I, do, I do that in the morning. Then I stretch. Um, and like, I mean, I have a, if you really want to know, I mean, I have it down to per 45 minutes of how I spend my day. And, you know, I then read. Um, from there, my daughter, then I get breakfast prepped, a little bit of housework done, get uh, my daughter's breakfast ready. I take her off to school and then I come home and then that's really where it starts to happen. And I never know what it's going to lead to, but I just sort of like, you know, start, I've got pads everywhere, which I'm writing and scribbling on and flicking every page. Yeah, a million browsers open. And yeah, I just sort of, free flow it, you know? Um, but the main thing is, is that like I set aside my time and I rock up every day. I, ha I follow what I, I call my own principle. <laughs> it might be a bit silly, but I call it the dad's principle now that I'm a, I'm a dad. And it's, it's what I think keeps me uh, focused. 
And it's like uh, determination, ambition, discipline. And then the last one is service. So I've got say being determined and ambitious is very easy. You know, you, that's actually very easy. It's the discipline that comes after it. And then most importantly, service. What I mean by that is I truly believe in doing something that's not for you. So I play music, not, I mean, trust me, like, obviously it's fun as hell. Obviously I love that side of it, but I believe that music saves lives. Not, not ours or not, not just ours. I, I mean, you know, kids do tell you that, but music saved my life. Right. So to me, that's the most important thing in, in, in the world. It's kind of like if the paramedic saved me when I was a kid, I'd probably be a paramedic. Right. But going to concerts, and listening to music at home in my room, that's what saved me. That's why I'm not a, you know, drug addict like a lot of people that went to school with. That's why I'm not, you know, I don't hate my family, you know, um, because of, um, I'm, I'm living in service. Um, so I rock up, I'd be present, I'd be disciplined. And then I live in service for any other kid that's life might be potentially saved by music. I love you're that. You're a fucking good man. Yeah, you're a good human, mate. You're a good human. <laughs> I wanted to touch on um, music connected to people's memories and experiences. So in terms of when people go to a festival, obviously the music's there, but it's they're there with their friends. They're there with their loved ones. And I just think music plays that sort of that, that soundtrack to that, to that experience and to that memory. So when they hear something, um, say a song from you guys, it reminds them of something of the past. Is that something that you guys are conscious of? And um, yeah, it's something that you guys think about. No, no, it's um, I do agree that it does do that that's a special thing that happens that you can't, we don't know why. And universally that's, that's one of the, the great, you know, myths, I guess. And so to try and tap into that would not only be you know, disingenuous, it would also be trying to the ego or one or myself or, or us thinking that we were in charge or possibly able to do that. We're not. That's, that's the universe, you know, that, that it's beyond us. Again, all we can do is rock up. We can be determined, ambitious, disciplined, and in service of others. And then those sort of magical moments happen. Do you like hearing when people come up to you and share their stories and, and that? Is that sort of um, in terms of, oh, I remember when I heard this song at this show over here and it was amazing and stuff like that. Does that sort of little wins like that, do they fuel the fire? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's like, it's things like that, that like, I mean, I could sit here and tell you, trust me, we've had like a thousand of the worst days you could ever imagine. Like, I'm not even gonna, but like, that's not the, um, yeah, that's, those days are, are not even thought about because of, of stories that are shared like that, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, to be honest, it is a bit much when people are like, you know, you saved my life. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a... What yeah. song did I write it? Was it me? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's more, um, you know, I know all my faults and flaws and, you know, I don't think, of, I can't think of myself as like that. It's like, well, don't follow me. I'm not, you know. <laughs> I, I get that. I totally get 100%. that. Mate, I reckon we've got a few more questions that we, topics we'd love to, for you to touch on and pick your brain on. One of them was around marketing and branding and like what goes into actually releasing a product. So from, if you can step away from just being like music and talk more holistically, the things that you look at when you're sort of trying, what goes into releasing your 
end product? I think of every company like a gang and you want to be part of it. So Wu-Tang's the best example. That's how I view it. You know, um, uh, every, every company, um, you know, whether it be computers um, or, or anything, I view it as in like you, you want to create something that makes people want to be a part of it. It's, 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 it's pretty simple. You know, it's kind of like it's, it's playing on, I guess, that same mentality that's left over from high school, right? Like you want to be going to that party. How did you market that party? How do you That's go into like growing an audience? So like, like you said, if, if you treat it like a gang, how do you recruit your new gang members? <laughs> well, I treat it. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I, I guess my band, I don't, I don't actually think of it quite like that. It's funny. Eh, when you, when you flip it like that. Um, <laughs> or the, maybe the younger bands that you're working with at the moment. Yeah. Um, how do you grow an audience? Um, there's, there's multiple ways, but, I, I like to think of it as organic and, and word of mouth. Um, I think that's something that our band did, you know, quite well for a long time. And then when we did blow up, we had such a different, um, we maintained such a different level because there were so many genuine people there from the, from the start. And I guess then we've never had to sort of live hand to mouth. So we've never had, we then never fall into the trap of having to, compromise what we're doing to get something out quicker to try and keep a fan base that isn't actually really there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we all went back to organic fruits and vegetables, it's a perfect example, man, of like, that's how society is at the moment. So, you know, that's how music should be. You know, I think like we, we, we're all a bit frustrated with CGI movies, you know, um, is the new star Wars, they might be great and do the job, but, is it really as magical as a new hope? So I think like I'm never trying to build the band, build the business, build the record label in that way. I'm just trying to make sure that the kid, me, whose life was saved by music is proud of the way I approach and respect the fans of music and, and um, anyone else, you know, consuming it. I, I, even though I'm in the music industry, I believe I'm not. You know, I often say to the bands on the label, I'm like, we're, we're in the music industry, but we're not of the music industry. And the differences of that is that like, we're not sort of trying to pander to them. I know you mentioned earlier, early influences like Blink-182, Green Day. It's very similar to, to myself. Me and Robbie love the old Grinspoon, Phil Jamison. I still remember... We went and saw him play at, um, I forget where it was, might have been the Hi-Fi bar. And he spat on me during Gone Tomorrow. And I was like, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love you, Phil. Oh, um, I love him too. But yeah, but, but early inspirations and stuff like that. Like, I'm, I'm not musically gifted, but just knowing and just being energized by music and knowing that's going to be a big part of my life. I just, you just automatically know that, sort of similar to yourself, I feel. So what sort of got you into, I know you just started guitar a bit late, but was it the Green Day, the Blink-182, that, that sort of skate punk sort of stuff? I mean, the first um, time, so like, I mean, I, dude, I could tell you like so many of my, my life stories, but long story short, I was a poor kid. So poor, in fact, that my dad used to paint my toes black with boot polish because there was holes in my, in my shoes where my toes would stick out. So to try and like make them blend in, he'd paint my toes black with boot polish because boot polish was cheaper than uh, new shoes. So we didn't have, he was unemployed with four kids and... Um, I didn't know this about him, um, but he loved rock and roll. And at nine years of age, 
we got our first TV, you know, first like proper one and we got a VHS player. And we were, I was nine years old, I know this because I hired out Batman Returns, was the first VHS I ever hired out and it was in the new release cool. section on a Friday night. Then on Saturday morning, right, I'm nine years old, 1992, I wake up, I'm so psyched to watch cartoons, right? I, every kid watches cartoons, not me, so I'm psyched. I wake up early, run down. I don't really know how to use the channel changer, I know it's crazy, but I turn it on and rage comes on. I'm nine years old and I just sit there like, what the hell is this? Now in 1992 in the charts, we're talking like Rage Against Machine killing in the name of, like uh, Faith No More. Um, these were the bands I saw, I, Ugly Kid Joe. You know, th that's what I'm looking at. And then the funny thing is though, there's this guy called Peter Andre <laughs> and, he, and he had this song called Give Me A Little Sign Girl. And I knew, E17 was another one that was on the, the charts at this time. But I knew, looking at Peter Andre, give me a little sign girl at nine years old, that I'm going to do that. I'm going to be Peter Andre. Yeah. That's Mysterious honestly. girl. And not only do I not have the, um, his career, I still don't have the ads. Oh, mate. <laughs> hey, hey, he was in some seriously good nick, he, Peter Andre. He brought, he made, he made um, put it, like, to the point where any... Uh, black album of Peter Andre, the first one with On Top, Funky Junkie, Give Me a Little Sign Girl. If I ever come across it, I buy it. So I own six copies on CD and I buy it as a reminder of like the nine-year-old kid, you know, that couldn't afford a CD. Um, well, now I've got like heaps of copies of it. Oh, I still buy all the singles too. So I got all Peter Andre singles. Yeah. Have yeah, you so met him? Nah, I haven't. Nah, nah, I'd love to. Oh, me yeah, too. It sounds crazy, but yeah, that was, that was the moment and it wasn't until I was 20 that I worked out, oh, well, I'm going to have to learn an instrument, you know. <laughs> That's oh. up to rage. Yeah. You just give shit out to rage. Changed, changed my life. And then my, my relationship with my dad just became next level because he loved music. So he started going and buying all of his old records, um, which was like, you know, Led Zeppelin and obviously the Beatles. He's a big Joe Cocker fan, but Deep Purple, Alice Cooper. He took me to Deep Purple, Alice Cooper. He took me to Green Day Nimrod tour. <laughs> um, yeah. No way. 15, yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we ended up having this relationship because my dad was like, he was 33 when I was nine or something like that. So he's younger than me now. And so we'd sit there and watch Rage together. And then he taught me to put in a cassette and we could tape all the, the songs off it. So that's how I started getting into music and I'd make mixtapes. I was nine years old, make a mixtape after mixtape and just sit there listening to music. And um, yeah, I don't know where that story was going. That was that's good. Bad. That's no, how I got into music, you know, I got a TV. Get a TV and listen to Peter Andre. I love it. I love it. What was in the Inbetweeners movie where they had Peter Andre on the side of the car? Have you seen that? I haven't, but I know the show, the English show. Yeah, mate. I think it's Inbetweeners 2. They come to Australia and they got Peter Andre, a mysterious girl on the side of the car. You might be able to buy it, actually. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's I'll check it out. Well, yeah, <laughs> Peter Andre moved to the, the UK. I, I just say him because like, you know, I was into that too unlimited, uh, no limit. I, I know, you know, I've still got that CD as well, you know, so it's very different music style that got me into it. Well, you know, I still loved Faith No More, but I wasn't, you know, Cats in the Cradle. I think Ugly Kid Joe did a version of that. And yeah, I was nine and yeah, that's it. it I, I was so lucky in the, in the time of what music was happening as well, because you know, go back and listen to Green Day, Dookie. Uh, go back and listen to 
you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness. Um, these albums are like in the charts, like I'm talking pop charts and how bands and people carry on now, like that they're important. It's like, mate, you're not Post Malone. Like you're not even remotely close. You're in a, in a niche genre of a niche. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and, and that, that to me, like always blows my mind is like, and I, I often think about uh, Blink 182 with this, like they grew up as, as friends taught themselves their own instruments and took pop punk, which was like Screeching Weasel, Propagandi, Good Riddance. These, these stickers are on their guitars when they, they come out with Damn It. And they took it to a level where it was comparable of Backstreet Boys. Like not only comparable, they, they're standing up at the same award shows, winning awards over the Backstreet Boys. That's a great band. Like probably the last band that truly came from the, uh, an underground scene and an underground movement that created a pop style of it and ended up in the charts. Probably the last. I, I don't even think the White Stripes ended up in that level of, of charts. No way. And it's that, oh, 100%, mate, 100%. So we're gifted with like an incredible upbringing. You know, the, the easiest way to, to, to navigate your way through the music industry is what did I find acceptable when I was a kid? Yeah. And, you know, because that's, that's who you're trying to impress. So don't 100%. let them down. Blink, Blink's like the gateway drug. It's like weed. You know what I mean? As soon, <laughs> as, soon, as soon as you discover Blink, you can go in all different types of directions. And thank God I went in, I went down the rock route early, the emo sort of stuff, the Taking Back Sunday, Motion oh, City it. soundtrack, all that sort of shit. Yeah. But now I'm into Tycho and, and you guys, and I've just got an eclectic music is Tyco, taste. Is Tycho a band or are you mean the company? No, nah, Tycho, Tycho's a band. It's Scott Hansen. Have you, have you heard of him before? Scott Hanson. Yeah, his name's Scott Hanson. He's got a band around him. Zach Taylor and Isaac Hanson. <laughs> oh, fuck. And, hey, they got I, a few I, good songs as well. Umbop, baby. Yeah. Umbop, baby. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I haven't. Um, so I'm just going to write it down. Tyke. Oh, mate. I, I swear by it. It's, that, that's changed my life single-handedly. There's an See. album called Dive. Um, it's electronic stuff, but they bought this yep. live element to it and they got drummers and guitars. And when you go see them live, they got, it's all about the visual. Oh, it's just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Right. But right. I, I want to talk about when you played Laneway Festival. I, I remember going to that one as well. And that was the only time I've seen you at um, a festival. I haven't seen you at Splendor or, or Falls or anything like that. But you bought the heat that day. And I think you were playing on the Dean Turner stage, if I remember correctly. We were. And what's, what's so crazy is... We actually played Laneway twice, I think, before that. So we, we, we played it the first time it ever went around the country. And like the, the lineup was awesome. It was like cool kids, broken social scene. I'm a big cool kids fan. So yeah, I um, love it. That was, that was rad to get to see them all the time. Big hip hop fan. And then, um, and like hang out with them as well. And like, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, it sounded yeah. a bit silly. Eh? I, was about to, yeah, I was about to go into like, you know, I'm hanging out with Mikey Rocks and he's telling me how like Kanye West has ripped him off and Radiohead, which is a true story. And um, uh, so, and, and Cool Kids are from Chicago and that story does check out the Kanye West one. But the, um, the lane, laneway is a, a pretty, uh, yeah, pretty interesting one because we were playing it from back then and Dean got us that tour. And so to then be going back and playing the stage, I'm sure I would have had to have said something on stage. I don't, yeah. don't remember what. Um, but, but Dean's wife, uh, Linda, she comes to every show um, still, uh, especially uh, ones like that. 
so you know she was there and she now brings um uh, one of her daughters that they they have two daughters um to the shows and stuff so yeah it's, it's, it's real special laneway is a um is a it's a ripping festival that's for sure it's a different beast isn't it it's a, it's a real eclectic lineup of all different sort of acts and the whole setup there is is a, is a bit different to a lot of other festivals so it's yeah, definitely I, funky I, I like it that they've gone pretty pop too i yeah, me too. That's pretty cool. They got, I think they had Charlie XCX. Or... Yeah, good performers are good performers. It doesn't matter, you know, what genre or whatever. It's just good artists are good artists. Yeah, I think that like in the world, that's the, that's the whole thing now, right? Like we've, I think we've finally gotten over the whole, uh, what Kurt Cobain did to the world, which was he clocked it. I mean, yeah. we yeah. pretty much have got the cheat codes. Yeah, we haven't regrouped <laughs> since. We're still like even modern day hipsters are dressing like Kurt Cobain from back then. He he really clocked the you know pop cultural game. I, but I think like where we've come is like no one cares about genre. No one cares about selling out. What people care about is you being you. We're we're all put in a in a in a space now where it's cooler to be you than ever. You know that should relieve so much pressure. But for some reason. Yeah, a lot of the kids are still, you know, focused on on trying to keep up. But, um, you know, all of that's gone. You don't have to be anything. You can be exactly you. Charlie XCX can play right after, like, I don't know, King Gizzard. 100%. You know, the world's ripping in that way. And you know why? That's because it's our generation. We're just going to wait for all these old people to die. (laughs) (laughs) We can get back on with the job. Like, we understand. Yes, we understand. We're, We're just waiting for them to die so we can make the world understandably fair you know <laughs> how has COVID impacted you have, have you been uh, the music scene's been torn you've just released a new album and you've now can't go anywhere is that what's going on yeah i mean like uh yeah we can't go anywhere i mean we cancelled our sold out like uh oh check this out like amsterdam was sold out on 420 oh. april, <laughs> on april the 20th of april we were sold out Amsterdam at Paradiso where Nirvana broke in the, in, in Europe. So yeah, that was a bit of a shit one to cancel. And like we canceled, sold out LA, New York, London, London was like two cut sold out. And our first time going back there in a, in a while, I think since like 2011, we don't, yeah, I'm not going to say too much about us. We're not, we're not big on travel, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, it had a huge impact. I mean, we, we basically came up with different ways to launch the album. And then that, that couldn't work because it, it ended up the week that the album came out, we couldn't even be in the room together to celebrate it. <laughs> so I've seen Luke boredom one time since that album came out and that was last week. And, and so as COVID like hits absolute peak hysteria or pandemic, if that's the word that they use, we can't be together and our album's out called everything is a okay. As like, you know, peak of everything, obviously not being particularly good, let alone, uh, you know, A-OK. And like, um, you know, that's part of the reason why, the only reason why I say that is because again, you're not in charge. Your message, if you're, if you're doing it right, is, is bigger than you. You're not going to know how it lines up, but it's, it, we, were, we were so worried that people wouldn't understand the album name because we have the Australian flag on it at half mast as well. And the, the label, uh, people, people were quite concerned, I, I should say, not, not, not the label, but just people in general that, that knew us, that like putting the Australian flag on the front cover and calling everything is A-OK, it, it, you know, it's, it's, 
we're expecting a lot for people to totally understand what we're saying. But that's why the flag was at half mast. And when, when this was kicking around, I sent it to my mate and um, because everyone's like, well, show some friends and see what they think. So everyone sends back what their friends think. And I sent it to my mate who is um, Briggs, the, uh, the rapper. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He writes back straight away to me. And he, uh, he's a good man, he's an absolute legend. Writes back, um, mate, the flag's at half mast. And I'm like, yeah, the flag's at half mast. And I'm like, should we be concerned about this? And he wrote back, if people don't get this, then I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, dude, that should be the sticker on the front cover. If people don't get this, I don't know what to tell you. Briggs, the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> Senator but, Briggs. Um, you know, so yeah, that comes out. It goes to number one. And yeah, we got the number one album in the country at the peak of the pandemic. And it's got everything is A-OK. I mean, to think that, and two years before that, we came up with this idea to do billboards and Luke wrote this song called Vacation Forever, which has the lyric in it, the, the baby boomer across the street won't stop staring back at me. So we put up this billboard with the whole thing called Boomer and that week, OK Boomer, the hashtag trends. You know, so that has nothing to do with us. This was put in place two years before. I've had people be like, man, the marketing campaign is like spot on because when we're all told we can't do concerts, we come out with a video where we're going door knocking and playing the song in people's homes. And um, again, you're, you're not in control. You're not in charge. The more you learn that and understand that, that there is a message trying to break through that's bigger than you, the, the better that message will, will come across. So we were, we were very concerned that people won't understand that we're sort of saying everything is not a-okay, but we, 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 try and, we live in a society where we just keep telling ourselves that everything's a-okay. That's why the flag's at half-mast, et cetera, et cetera. So we were concerned that people weren't going to get that. And then given the time and everything that came out, I mean, the, the universe made the album title make more sense than what we ever could. They're going to remember it for sure, 100%. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, it's, it's impacted us, obviously. I mean, we, we cancelled our tour. Yeah, we cancelled everything. We, we, we've literally put the band back on ice, if I'm being honest. And if we don't tour... If that, that whole album just is that and, and we don't get back to doing it, it'd be pretty interesting because our last show, that means, will be uh, for the Everything is AK tour, I guess, was at the Tote. I saw that, the old school marketing vibe there to get all the... Yeah, that was... that was. Hey, Rob, you should hear about this. This is very, very what, cool. Tell me the story. What happened? Oh, they just... They got the old school flyers out, didn't they? You didn't promote it online or anything like that? No, nothing posted online. So again... Um, the whole idea is always coming back to your roots, always making sure that we're coming from the pure place where it started and um, that we're always being true to ourselves, our, 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 our child self or the, the person that was inspired to, to do this. And so part of that in, in a world, in a, in a digital world where everyone is like constantly blogging, like what do we got? Influencers, right? So we are not influencers. So we wanted to do the total opposite. And we're very community focused. We're big on, on record stores and definitely independent businesses. So what we did was, is we decided to do shows. Our first shows back in, it was our first show back in Melbourne, apart from good things in like three years. So we went from Festival Hall, our next show back was at the Tote. Oh, no, is it Festival Hall in Melbourne? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. North yeah. Melbourne, yeah, Festival yeah. Hall. We played there and then yeah, our next show back was at the Tote. So, um, what we did was is um, we made the tickets $15, including booking fee, but you could only get them at uh, record stores. So you had to go into the store physically to buy it. 
and we did no online promotion. We just got our mate uh, Murdoch to do up these flyers. In fact, I got one of the, the flyers, so I'm sure you can look it up or whatever. And we got our friends to hand out the flyers, old school. That's how the word got out. And um, part of that, like people have said to me, like, you know, it's a great marketing thing. And I guess maybe, and then obviously people lined up for two days and, you know, to get the tickets, it sold out instantly. But again, like it's more just being true to yourself. And again, we come from an era where you had to line up to get tickets, where you had to go to the record store. It wasn't about having the fastest internet connection or the time off work or enough money on your credit card, you know, to be able to buy 50 tickets um, and sell them at inflated prices. So that, that's how we went about it. And then um, the best part was, is it was paying respect, we thought, to the fans. Uh, not, not, not our fans, but fans of music. And because that's the right way of going about, you know, marketing your shows and getting your shows to the right people. And what I mean by that is if you have $15, as long as you're standing outside that record store, the people that are most keen get to go. Not the people that, you know, I mean, when we're talking 300 tickets and it's a click of a button, that is Russian roulette. And so... When we did it, and of course, labels and management come with a bunch of like ideas and they're all valid and fair. But what they wanted to do was do a $70 ticket that came with the album. Because of course, then that goes to charts and it gets us a thousand sales over the three shows or more actually towards the charts and that sort of thing. So what we did was, is we didn't do that. Like we, we kept it all word of mouth. And then if you lined up, you got to see the album in person at the record store. You're the first person to see the track listing. So then now we have all these kids taking photos, posting it because they're the first ones. They're in control. We, we take control away from the media, away from the press, and we give it to the people that support our bands more than anyone. And we um, give them a sense of pride as the voice of Silent Soho, you know? Um, and we instill them with the power because the power is always with the people. And you'll always get a much better result if the excitement I get for sharing our album cover to the world or our album, someone else now gets to share that same excitement. Like, hey, dude, you're not going to believe it. This is what the album's called. This is what it looks like. And they're texting each other. So now people are talking, people are getting hyped up. It's organic. It's real. It's not online. And again, the confidence isn't about, to actually come back to being confident, it's not about being confident that you can sell out those shows or that you will get a number one record without doing those things, with keeping the ticket price $15, with not asking for a pre-order. The confidence is in the overall uh, achievement of what you're trying to do. And that, that was to do something that no one else was doing, to not give it to press, to not advertise it, to not spam everyone on the internet, to not even allow digital sales. You know, that was the, the whole thing. And, and at the end of the day, it's not even marketing to us. It's being, uh, having integrity and doing things the right way for the right reason. Oh, I love that. That was a sick story. That You're the mad. king. You are the king, honestly. Did you, was that your idea? Um, it was, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, it was. Oh, yes. Claim it. If it was yours, you say yes, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think about things a lot, you know. Honestly, though, that's that's a way different approach than a lot of other artists and, and that do. And I think just hearing that for some people will just put ideas in their head, you know what I mean? And how to stay true to themselves. Because I think sometimes it's the ideas and the creativity. They, can't, they, don't, they don't, might not necessarily 
think for themselves or, you know, just follow the certain path that somebody else has laid out. But when you've sort of doing something together and that that's meaningful, I mean, the ideas can, can flow quite quickly. I think that's what we've found personally starting the podcast is as soon as we're in the groove and doing it, the confidence in the ideas just flow. It's exactly right. So the idea is you want to stay in that flow and you are not the creator of that flow. All right. If you're a surfer, you couldn't understand this more. Um, every wave is different. You know, pick your wave, but once you're on it, you know, you can only use what you got. WSL is the best example. You know, it's a competition where no one has the same equipment to, to work with. You know what I mean? It's, it's always going to be different. And, and, and that's, that's the idea, right? Like, we're not in charge of getting our song on the radio. We're not in charge of our genre being uh, popular at the time. We're not in charge of, you know, our, our merch you know, connecting. They're just t-shirts. So, but what you are in charge of is being in your moment right now and doing it right to the best of your ability because you're going to be the only one left standing on the beach still stoked at the end of that wave. That's the only person you're ever performing to. Oh, I've had such a good day today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Honestly, mate, you're blowing our minds. And I think it's just, yeah, it's just diff different metaphors. I mean, we speak from a tech design background, but different music metaphors relate to different people in different ways, you know? So I think some of the stuff you spoke about today has been absolutely unreal, mate. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time, spending, spending your Friday uh, afternoon with us. No worries, dudes. I'm about to uh, go and uh, throw some uh, yeah, fish on the smoker and get into the afternoon. Oh, I had a good time. I'm not even sitting here and I hate this shit. I don't know. It's very weird that I would say yes to something like this. And that's a perfect example of everything that I'm trying to say. You know, follow your gut instincts. You know, everything that I've spoken about, I've never spoken about to anyone. You know, um, I didn't expect to necessarily go into it quite this deep or anything like it. But, um, you know, follow your gut. You know, what? it knows what it, you're supposed to be doing. Appreciate oh. you sharing. As always, if you like what you're hearing, uh, share it with a friend, like, subscribe, all that sort of stuff, whatever you want to do. We'd love to hear from you. Um, also, yeah, send us in your learnings. I know Rob's pretty keen, keen on that. So um, he's been on my back. So do me a favor and, and sort that out for me. Cheers.